I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. You're listening to the Utah Man Podcast. Bringing you the latest news and analysis for your Utah Utes. Now your hosts... Cameron, Ryan, and Scott. Welcome on into the Utah Man Podcast. I'm Cameron, and we got Ryan. What's up, Ute Nation? And Scott. How we doing? You know, this is our annual roundtable end of season, talking about Utah football didn't end the way I think a lot of Utah fans wanted, but we're still going to talk about it. <laughs> we're coming, recording from Double Tree Suites in downtown, watching the NCAA championship game. We have that. We got some food going on. Scott's got a swimsuit. He's going to jump in the indoor pool as soon as we're done with this. They got a wave pool right behind us. What room are you staying in? <laughs> but I am super excited to introduce... Our guest host of the night, don't call it a comeback, because he's out of, coming out of retirement, <laughs> the world-famous Kurt Crackthorpe, from the, formerly from the Salt Lake Tribune. Kurt, thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you. This will be fun. Is, is, this, your, is this your first, uh, your first gig uh, outside of, outside of uh, retirement? Absolutely, I would only do this for the Utah Man Podcast. <laughs> yes. it, it was in his contract. <laughs> if you've listened to us before, this is we kind of do this every year at the end of the year, kind of recap the season. Kind of, we don't have a big agenda. We just kind of let it roll, kind of see what goes around on um, this this roundtable, and kind of see what what goes on. So let's just dive into it. Utah eleven and three on the season, really up and down. Started out. Playoff expectations were high. Conference championship expectations were high. And then it kind of ended on a sour note, I think. Yeah, I would. Uh, I mean, you, you look back at this season and, uh, right, you had uh, Corso on game day. You had all these national writers and publications touting Utah to, uh, to not only win the Pac-12, but to be a representative as one of the four teams in the college football playoff. So right from the get-go, you have all this hype and excitement surrounding Utah football with the team that was coming back. And uh, the regular season, I mean, outside of that USC game, it really didn't disappoint. They they kind of held up their end of the bargain, but it was uh, it, it took a quick turn these last two games uh, as the postseason came. But, uh, yeah, I mean... Obviously, we'll jump into it. We'll kind of break it down. But really, what a what a fun season it was! It really was a fun season, and I think, I mean, from if you take a step back, and even if you're an an outsider and you looked at Utah, uh, you didn't watch many of their games, but you looked at their final record of eleven and three. You would think they had a great season, and and of course they didn't. What a fun season it was to participate in! But man, it was so brutal those last two games as a fan. Yeah, you know, looking back, 
I thought it was going to be a huge jump for Utah to go from six and three last year to anything better than that in the in the Pac-12, and so to go eight and one, especially requiring those eight straight wins after the loss to USC was was really quite a run when you think about it. And uh, of course, the bigger the buildup, the bigger the letdown, and <laughs> and it, it it is almost like we have to separate this discussion into the first 12 games and the last yes. two because uh, there's such a disconnect between those two elements. And, uh, you know, in a lot of ways, as, as we go along, I think those last two games are explainable by some things that we saw during the first 12 and maybe tended to overlook a little bit. But certainly uh, there is a line of demarcation. and And I'm acknowledging that that a lot of you fans will focus a lot more on the last two than they do the first 12 and that's again part of the the build up and the letdown and that occurred and Kurt that's why you're here is to help explain those last two games to all of us because we're still we're still trying to figure those out <laughs> the hard part for me as a fan is you know Utah goes on that run and they're playing so well they're blowing everybody out and You've got a lot of people saying this team is the best team Utah's ever had, better than 04, better than the 08 team. Um, and then there's other people saying, you know, there's weaknesses on this team. You're not playing anybody. The Pac-12 is down. And as, as a fan and you're winning, you're going through this, you don't, you don't want to believe any of that. You think this, this is the team. And then, of course, the letdown happens. You think, well, maybe the Pac-12 is down or there are some weaknesses and I think we did see some weaknesses in this team, uh, obviously exploited in those last two games. But but to carry off of that, it wasn't just it wasn't just the Utah fan base that was overhyping this team. I mean, they were ranked fifth in the in the playoff rankings. I mean, everybody kind of had this Utah team pegged as as a contender to not only make the playoff, but you know I don't know if they really get to do anything in it, but to make that top four. And so it wasn't just Ute fans getting getting in front of our skis on this and getting a little too excited. It was the there was a lot of people kind of jumping on that bandwagon as that season went on. And and over those last eight games, why not? They were dominating every team that they played. And and to that point, you know, I I, I just think. I don't know. I don't know what I'm thinking right now. <laughs> We're going to tell you what you're thinking as we go along. <laughs> Before we get into things, I really want to let you know about this new product we're just finding out about. Now, living with chronic pain is the worst. It's more than a feeling of discomfort. It can affect your whole life. Now, many of our listeners probably have some type of pain that's prevented them from relaxing and sleeping or stopped them from exercising. Perhaps it's been going on for a few weeks now and it hasn't improved with any other treatment that you've tried. Enter Omax Health. If you're looking to get rid of nagging muscle and joint pain immediately while providing long-lasting recovery, then you need to try the natural breakthrough pain relief solution, CryoFreeze CBD Roll-On developed by Omax Health. This non-prescription triple-action pain relief roll-on is specifically formulated to block pain receptors, reduce inflammation, and improve muscle and joint flexibility. The best part is this 100% natural, 
CBD-powered remedy works its magic within 10 minutes of application and relief lasts up to 8 hours, much longer than over-the-counter products. Omax Health is offering our listeners 20% off a full bottle of cryo-free CBD pain relief roll-on plus free shipping. This discount also applies towards any product site-wide. Just go to omaxhealth.com today and enter code OVERTIME. That's O-M-A-X-Health.com and enter OVERTIME to get 20% off cryo-freeze and everything site-wide. Now, uh, good stuff. Let's let's take it back. Spring ball, fall camp. Andy Ludwig comes in, bringing in a whole new offense. There's a lot of talk about maybe Utah being the Cinderella team. It was a lot of excitement. Kirk, I know someone that was up at practice every single day. Do you think that's a, a good thing for this program to, to kind of have those expectations at the beginning of the year? I think so, yes. I mean, you have to embrace that. And based on what we know now and what we knew then about the talent level of this team, I keep saying they're going to have 10 players drafted by the NFL in April. That may be one or two high, but but certainly it's going to be in the range of the school record of eight, which was from the 2016 team, which was a pretty darn good team looking back that, that probably underachieved. Yeah. But to that point, there was no reason not to feel optimistic about this Utah team. And it all started basically a year ago today when we found out that Moss and I, Fotu and, and Blackman all were coming back and they could have gone into the NFL. And so all of that fueled the optimism for 2019. And, and we go to Pac-12 Media Day in, in July and the, and the Utes were actually picked to win the conference. Now, I kept saying at the time there was an asterisk on that because half the people picked Washington in the, in the north and half the people picked yeah. Oregon. And so at that point, you can only choose from that team to be your overall champion. So so I want to ask about that. What was the feeling like that at pac Media Days when it was announced that Utah was picked to win the conference? Kind of what was the feeling around everyone there? Yeah, and again, I, th- I think with that explanation in mind, it, it was not unexpected. I mean, the initial jolt, when I, I, I literally knew the email was coming out at, at 6 a.m. Los Angeles times, and, and I was ready to, to get that information. And it, and it did kind of catch me off guard that, that Utah was the pick to win the conference championship. But then again, when you, when you do the math and break it down, it, it made sense. We all knew that there was no question Utah would be the favorite in the South, and then again, with the split vote of Oregon and Washington in the North, it, it stood to reason that that Utah would would be the overall pick because people who who voted for they split the vote. Yeah, in the exactly. North. That, yeah, that's that's what I keep trying to say. So, but based on that, it it, was, it it still was a seminal moment for the program, and I remember Mark Harlan talking to him immediately after that initial announcement, and he said what, what a moment it was for the program and to think of nine years of building to that point. And, and he didn't back off from that expectation at all, and, and I thought that set a good tone for the whole season going into it. When, when I think, I mean, th- having those expectations, that's huge for the program because if you want to get to the point where Utah is considered 
one of the the favorites or one of the marquee teams in the Pac-12, you have to deal with those expectations, right? For so many years, Utah was the underdog. They were kind of the quiet team, and they would sneak up on people, and you'd have a, a, a 2004 or a 2008 perfect season. Well, all of a sudden, the limelight's strictly on Utah from day number one, and they, they can't be the underdog anymore. They are now the favorite, which was just a whole different scenario for, for this program, but I think it's, it was so big to have that and then not only get picked to win it, but produce throughout the regular season with those high expectations on them. So we had those high expectations for Utah. Another high expectation is Andy Ludwig coming back. Ryan, I'll kick this over to you. Do you feel it was a success this whole season with Andy? There was a lot of buildup in the offseason about Utah getting another OC, but an experienced OC, one they haven't had in a long time. Would you call it a success, the, the Ludwig's first year back? Oh, yeah, I, I would call it a success. And I, and I was, I think all three of us were excited when we talked about it early on. Um, we, you know, the Troy Taylor offense didn't play out like any of us thought or hoped it would. And then with Ludwig coming back to Utah, it was, it was kind of a cool story. Uh, obviously, he's had a lot of experience in between his stints here and, and brought and brought some things back with him. And he had a, a senior-laden uh, team to, to build, or build his offense around. And we saw some things throughout the season that were just awesome to watch. I mean, the introduction of the utilization of Keithy, in the offense was was awesome, and obviously the use of Moss and uh, him becoming the all-time Utah run, rushing leader and all all, all of that. Um, but then you know we get towards the end of the season, and you kind of it almost felt like we were relapsing, reverting back to when he was here the first time. It was just run the ball up the middle and nothing happening and just keep doing it. And there we was were no, having a rod flashbacks. No creativity <laughs> to the offense, and the, it just wasn't. Things weren't happening. And I know there's some offensive line issues that play into that. But uh, I think, in going back to your question, Cam, yes, I think overall it was a success and something to definitely build off of going forward. Well, we've been saying for years, right, if we could only get an offense to match the defense, we could do something. And, and, we, and we finally did that. We didn't – we – it was so fun as a fan to go through this year knowing, hey, our defense is going to show up just like they do year in and year out. But now we've got an offense that can, can match that defense, which allows these snooze fest fourth quarters that we had throughout the season, which were so nice to not be <laughs> having these nail biters right down to the wire. And, I mean, I, I thought Ludwig was tremendous. I thought the regular season, you know, I don't even know if he necessarily had a bad game. You know, the USC's kind of it, it, obviously it, it stands out, but I wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily put that on Ludwig. That was more of the team and just some mental issues and you know fumbling the ball going into the goal, going into score before halftime, a number of things. But I I thought Ludwig was tremendous, uh, um, at least through the the regular season. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to look back at, at various checkpoints of the of the year and think about things I wrote. And, uh, and, of course, knowing the ending now kind of uh, devalues those a little bit. But a couple of things stand out. One is uh, I wrote a story after the Arizona game, which would have been game 11, of how infrequently the youth were having to punt because we, we all have watched these 
series of punters come through the program and win Ray Guy Awards. And, and here's Ben Lennon signing up to do this. And he thinks he's going to have this job where he gets to punt about six times a game and showcase <laughs> his skills. And, and through 11 games, he'd only punted 28 times wow. at less than three times a game. And, and I another story I did right in that period was I basically kind of made the point is, as you guys have said, this is the offense that Kyle Whittingham always wanted because not only did it produce points, but it it was it was almost like they the on purpose took as many plays as possible to go down the field and score, which shortened the game, kept the defense on the field and off the field, uh, which is something I've always kind of made fun of that phrase because. In my mind, the defense has this thing where if they play three good plays in a row, they can get off the field themselves. But, but I became a believer that time of possession actually did mean something because these guys were only having to play 56 or 58 defensive snaps a game, and the first team even less than that. So it was all converging to, to be this, this offense that, like I say, Kyle Whittingham had always wanted. And, and, it's a, a, a quote I do remember now is he said, you know what? I only judge these things at the end of the season. And so that kind of came back to haunt him a little bit that it, that he, that he was the one voice of reason saying, wait a minute, uh, there's more to be done offensively. But yeah, he, he did like what was happening. And I, and I thought the other, to the point of it's being made about Ledwig being a little more creative than maybe we would have thought it. Uh, we thought of him coming back and knowing the Kyle Whittingham mentality was, okay, Zach Moss is going to get the ball 30 times a game, guaranteed. Mm -hmm. Well, again, to the point about the offensive line not being that great and also the fact that you don't want to just pound Zach into the ground he, he he actually carried the ball almost exactly the same amount of times, 19.5 roughly, as he did a year ago. Now, part of that was the fact he, he was able to get out of games in the second half because they were way ahead. But, but because of the offensive line not being dominant, and I think it'll be a theme of what we talk about all night long, uh... Ludwig did have to be more creative in in the running game beyond just handing it to Zach, and and, and that was a really fun element to watch, I thought. Yeah, you had to get a, a lot more people involved in it, right? We had the end around with Keithy a couple times, we had Vickers getting involved. Uh, I think that, that depth with the running back was was big this season, you know, getting Devonta Hendrick-Cole and Brumfield and even a Jordan Wilmore, true freshman, getting him some reps. Uh, kind of, you know, could be the face of the program moving forward. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. All right, and so as we continue to kind of, you know, really dive into the season, uh, I want to give a shout out to Doubletree Suites uh, in Salt Lake City downtown. They're located at 110 West, 600 South. You know, if you're looking to do like a staycation, 
you don't want to spend a lot of money going somewhere far. Come downtown, stay at Doubletree. Every room's a suite. Do a staycation, indoor pool. They got a great restaurant, great bar. Hey, we're hanging out, watching the NCAA championship game right now with LSU and Clemson. So by the time you're listening to this, that game will be over. Hopefully the Pac-12 official, the Pac-12 officials haven't screwed it up for anybody. <laughs> In fact, maybe they should. No, because no. then the maybe uglier will, the better. Exactly, we'll bring attention. Well, bringing it back, you know, big shout out to DoubleTree taking care of us. They'll take care of you and your family. So check them out, 110 West, 600 South. All right, so Utah gets in regular season, undefeated non-conference play, including a ninth win over BYU. Is Utah ever going to lose to the Cougars? Let's be honest. <laughs> well, if, if we continue on the path we finish this season, it might be coming up next year. Yeah, considering what we got, two defensive starters coming back next year. If uh, if BYU wants to to end that streak, next year may be their best shot for uh, for a little while. But uh, yeah, yeah, I mean they 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 came out. Utah did kind of what they've been doing as of late. Go down to go down to Provo and and took care of business. And they went in uh, in that lightning delay and had some orange slices. And uh, what else was it they had? Uh, can't remember Tyler Huntley's quote. At Might the have been graham crackers. I'm not sure. Yeah, it was something like that. And, and then then came out and gave him a, a heavy dose of uh, Zach Moss to end the game. Well, I think my favorite part of that game was after the lightning, BYU did not touch the ball again. Utah just ran the clock out. Right, like a nine-minute drive. Uh-huh. that they, yeah. they ended on the two-yard line with Utah kneeling down. So, I mean, obviously, BYU is going to get a game. You know, I, it, it's going to happen. But really, as this rivalry moves forward, Kirk, as someone in the Utah media market, how important is this rivalry game? I was always biased toward it. I mean, I, I grew up with it as being part of the fabric of the state. And and uh, to me, it, it really is important. It, it just brings so much attention to each program, for better or worse, Uh Worse, definitely in the Cougars' case of the, the past decade, but but yeah, I, I just think it's something that the average sports fan looks forward to, and I think rivalries are important in college football, and and, and so I'm okay with with the Utes doing what they're going to be doing, playing Florida twice in 2022 and 23, to and and stepping aside from the rivalry. I, I don't think it necessarily has to be played every year, but. But I like it when it is played. I'll say that. It really is entertaining, right? And it kind of gives fans something to, to kind of look forward to. Because, right, who cares about Northern Illinois? Who cares about Idaho State? No offense. Mm-hmm. But but really, I mean, it's, it's it, it can be a marquee game when you have those games. But to your point, Kirk, I do like the Florida. That one as a fan, someone who talks about this team because there is his team, I'm excited for. And Baylor is coming up. So I mean, their non-conference does get a little bit better, which which it's needed to because it's been so watered down for so many years. And as a season ticket holder, you 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 show up to the you know the first month of the season, you're just kind of like bored. They're not exciting games. There's not even a lot of anticipation. It's almost just a built-in W. 
Um, and then when know, the conference makes you play at 11 a.m. and 100 degrees, it makes it even worse. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, yeah, I, I'm I'm all in favor with uh, what Mark Harlan's doing with the schedule, going out and getting some games. And Arkansas, now granted, Arkansas is probably the worst P5 team in the country. Um, but maybe by the time uh, those games roll around, they'll get they'll get rolling again here and uh, and be a little bit better. But it's definitely a step in the right direction. And I, I agree because I think, and I don't know if this is exactly true, but you kind of get the feeling though when Utah goes through that non-conference schedule of beating Idaho State and Northern Illinois, they weren't prepared when conference play came around. It was kind of like they just showed up. They knew they only had to show up to get the W, walk, go through the motions, and then all of a sudden you're playing USC, and it kind of showed. Well, I think it did, right? Because they went into USC on a Friday night, so a short week already. You're traveling, and, and you're right. You really haven't faced a, a tough opponent outside of BYU. Now, BYU is a whole different animal with the rivalry game, right? Different emotion. I mean, completely different emotion. So you take that, you have to take that aside, so and then... Yeah, Northern Illinois, Idaho State. You could tell it, they just they kind of rolled in that same mentality of showing up against USC. Uh, they got thumped thirty to twenty three. Zach Moss goes out, but Tyler Huntley showed a lot of fight, and I think that kind of proved what Huntley was going to do the rest of the season. I think that game set the tone for him and for the team because after that, they, that's when they went on the run, right? And you heard everyone every game after that. Everyone referred to that USC, that game, that loss, and it kind of put that bullseye on them where they had to win. It, it uh, Offensively in that game, they weren't horrible. They had the, the fumble at the goal line before half, which was which it affected the outcome. It was, it was a, a seven-point game. It was a killer. But what killed me in that game was the secondary getting destroyed time and time again on the deep ball. I mean... Going into the season and what we talked about preseason, we thought the secondary, nobody was going to move the ball on them. And then in that game, it was like they didn't know what they were doing back there. And it was crazy because guys were in position to make those plays. I mean, you look at 350 passing yards, roughly, and you say they, they must have just carved them up and had guys wide open all night long. And, and that wasn't the case. There was maybe one or two coverage busts, but man, I just think of of a couple of plays. I can just visualize them perfectly as we sit here tonight and where Julian Blackman and and guys like Lewis and, and Kidri or Burgess were, were around the ball seemingly in position to make those plays and just didn't do it. And uh, USC did have great receivers went and got the ball to their credit, but it's it's not like they were just blazing wide open. Uh, I, I just never seen a game where as many balls were just thrown up for grabs and, and the offense got them time after time. It honestly was like when you're on the playground and you play like money ball. Flies up. Flies up, that's what it's <laughs> called. That's really what it was. They threw it up, Michael Pittman just jumped any any time. It, it was I, crazy. I, I think you could actually hear him a couple times say, Hundred. <laughs> he's calling. He's calling out the value of each of those passes. But I mean, it's interesting. You look back at that game, and in the moment, that was a devastating loss because really the winner of that Utah USC game um, historically 
or at least over the last number of years, have gone on to win the South. And to lose to USC the first conference game of the season, it was pretty devastating. But you look back, and it, it really turned Utah. It kind of just woke them up. And it refocused them to the point where they turned into the team that we saw the rest of the way, which was, you know, just kind of, you didn't want it. You didn't want to have that loss, but it almost maybe was a blessing in disguise to get a wake up call and get the team refocused. And, and then, uh, you know, you have that eight game win streak to end the season, which was pretty historic for Utah football being in the Pac-12, right? We've had we've had those runs as a Mountain West in 04 and 08, perfect seasons. But to do it in the Pac-12, even, you know, people want to say it's a watered-down Pac-12, sure. But it's maybe it doesn't have the elite teams that the um, some of these other conferences has, but it's got a, it's a deep conference where typically guy teams at the bottom can win week in and week out and upset some of these guys. So to go and do eight straight games, you know, is really big for this program. And the amazing part of that is that it required an eight-game winning streak to win the South. Mm -hmm. I think uh, it's amazing that USC, as vulnerable as they were at times, went seven and two and had the tiebreaker. So it literally came down to that Colorado game of Utah having to win that game just to get to the the Pac-12 title game. And and the, so the youths at that time, I think, were ranked number six. And yet if, if somehow they'd lost to Colorado, they wouldn't would not even, even have won the division. So I think you make a great point that that it, it did re- make the youths play their best or something close to it week after week. And, they, and the fact that they were able to do that was pretty impressive. They had that pressure every week that they couldn't drop a game because of the tiebreaker that USC owned. Uh, so they, they had to kick that up. And I think that's the really interesting part in where how does this team go every week was a do-or-die situation, right? Those eight, and those eight next games they had to win. How did they go from having that pressure then to laying an egg at the end of the year? <laughs> uh, let's, just, uh, let's just call it spade a spade. It, it's crazy to think about how great this team was during that stretch, and they kind of faltered at the end. Yeah, that's kind of probably doesn't even need to be. Uh, <laughs> I, I'm always guilty of using too many hedge words, and that, that, that so I, I can see when more readily identify when others do it than when I do. But, but yeah, clearly, okay, so so it's a classic case of knowing what we know now about this team. Okay, now you can you go back and you, you do see some red flags that maybe we could or should have identified more strongly at the time. For example, I remember writing a story after the Northern Illinois game, which turned into a 35-17 to 17 win, about how the Utes went something like, two out of ten in short yardage situations. And that's with a healthy Zach Moss. As good as the Utes were on third down all year long, and, and they ended up something like 15th in the country in, in conversion percentage of about 48%, if I were really ambitious and not retired, uh, I would go back and look at what the percentage was of third and one and third and two. And I bet it's markedly worse than other down 
distances to go. I, I would completely agree with you. Yeah, it, it, which was a crazy phenomenon. But again, there was just something about that offensive line. That, and and again, uh, as I review my own performance during the season, I, there's there's things that I wish I had noticed earlier. Again, knowing what we know now, and and I I kind of give myself some credit for hinting that that the offensive line was probably the one unit of the team that was a non-playoff caliber group. And I, and what comes to mind is I, because there was this collision course of Oregon and Utah all seemingly all season long building toward the Pac-12 championship game. I was on a radio station in, in Eugene almost every week talking about the Utes and, and I know that on that forum, I repeatedly said I had concerns about Utah's offensive line. And I, but I don't know that I wrote, wrote those words with big headlines as much as I could have, could have done because, because clearly, if you, if you want to boil it down to one thing, okay, how can you possibly explain the Oregon game and the Texas game? The offensive line is what jumps out. And and again, another just the last point I make along those lines is uh, I study the f- pro football focus grades a lot for for Utah individual players, and and they were generally so impressive. Again, building toward this notion that they're going to have ten players drafted, but Zach Moss yards after contacts was was the one stat that kept jumping out at me all year long, and. That's a credit to Zach, but it also shows that he was not running behind an elite offensive line. Mm-hmm. He had more than a thousand yards after contact, which is an amazing crazy. stat to me. Yeah. That, now, it's, again, it shows that he has an NFL ability, but I just think of so many times, and that 91 yard run against Oregon State was a classic example of him getting hit in the backfield and yet making something out of it. Now, he didn't always go to the house every time, but, but he, he had a re- remarkable number of runs in those first 12 games where he made something out of getting hit at or near the line of scrimmage, and he just wasn't able to do that in those last two games. I would say a large percentage of those hits were behind the line of scrimmage. I agree. Yeah, well, I think you could look at every game and say there's there's a handful where, yeah, you almost you almost forgot about it because of the result that he then gave mm-hmm. by breaking those tackles, turning them into first downs, and so you almost forget at the time. Oh, yeah, that was bad blocking by the O line because Zach Moss bailed him out. And I think you could even add on top of that, we had probably the most athletic and fastest quarterback we've had in program history playing quarterback that negated some of that, the weakness of the O-line. I mean, you saw it in, in the, we, we mentioned in the USC game where, where Tyler was, it almost seemed like he was fighting by himself out there. Um, and he had, he had O-line, or excuse me, D-lineman in his face, snap after snap. You saw that against Oregon. You saw that against Texas. So it's really hard to get that offense rolling when the quarterback can't even have time to go through his reads and, and the play's just blown up from the get-go. And, uh, I mean, you look at those three losses, the most athletic and most talented teams that we played are USC, Oregon, and Texas. And their speed and, and their length just 
gave our our offensive line fits. Since we're talking about the offensive line, obviously, I mean, uh, Harding's been here a while, and for the most part, he's done a pretty good job coaching those guys up, put a few of them in the NFL. Um, and we kind of always, at least it seems like, they struggle in the beginning of the year, get better as the year progresses, and by the end of the year, they're, they're, they're a pretty good unit. This year, it, that didn't seem to happen. Um, is, that, is that a lack of talent? Is, is Harding run his course at Utah? I don't know. I don't think Harding's run his course at Utah. I mean, obviously, you know, he, what, the assistant head coach, Winningham, loves him. He wants him here. Uh, Harding is always interviewing, rumored to go to the NFL. I, I, I think a lot of problems with, with the offensive line is lack of depth across the board, lack of experience, and lack of really game reps together. I mean, you look at Oregon, and Oregon has one of the best O-lines in the country, but definitely the best one in the Pac-12, and there's a lot of continuity across that line. In in Utah, it almost seems like it's like a Band-Aid week to week. You don't ever know who's going to be in. You don't know who's going to be playing at one position. Mm-hmm. I mean, look how many times do they move Nick Ford across the field. And and I know you have to do that in, out of necessity of injuries and, and, and player personnel, but it's going to catch up to you, and I think it caught up to uh, up to the Utes. You can't do that forever. You got to get guys in there that can grow in that position, and they can grow as one unit. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting question, and I've always kind of been a, a believer in Harding, and and to the point about his his offensive lines, generally speaking, did improve th- throughout the course of the season. That, and there were times in November where, where I thought that was happening, and it. But again, you start to think back on the quality of opponent they're playing, UCLA and Arizona specifically, and realize that the the opponents in that case was kind of masking the deficiency, kind of like Tyler and and Zach Mm -hmm. overcame those shortcomings. And so I I think it is a fair point to say that this is the one year that the the offensive line didn't make that kind of steady improvement. Now, maybe it's just because they had the four underclassmen. And I, and I do agree with the notion that offensive line is the one area where experience makes a huge difference. And and to, to the point about Oregon, obviously they have Panay Sewell, who's literally the best offensive line. Yeah, you put him on any offensive line, yeah. and they will be the best offensive <laughs> line in the country. I've, 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 I, all season long, I've been wondering how you pronounce his name, so I'm glad you just pronounced that. <laughs> and I'm, it's funny you say that, because in my mind, I think I messed it up. <laughs> it sounded correct to me. Yeah. <laughs> Cameron, too. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I, 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 think the, I think the lack of experience and just the youth across the board, because you, you, you look at... The starters and how young and inexperienced the starters are, and then you go look at their backups. And if even if you project towards next season, the too deep at offensive line, it's still freshmen, sophomores, and some juniors. So it's that that ha- the having a lack of upperclassmen and guys with a lot of games under their belt really, yeah, it, it just really came back to bite them, and it's unfortunate with how the other position groups all kind of came together with so much experience, that that just puts an even brighter light on that offensive line 
and and really gets all the attention for for you know the negativity and and uh, the focus is on them because they're really the one position group that we came in with tons of questions and and with a lot of you know lack of experience and and unfortunately they just couldn't make the strides over the course of the season to kind of catch up and 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 match some of those other position groups but i i i think we're going to probably still have some growing pains next year i don't think we're out of the woods on the offensive line yeah there's gonna be a lot of questions about those guys now you start with the premise that you have four returning starters but the the one guy you lose is the all pack 12 player darren paulo at left tackle now i'll divert and say if you have an all pack 12 left tackle and a, and the offensive player of the year <laughs> Can't you get a third and one by running that guy behind that guy? Preach, Kurt. Preach. <laughs> so now the other part is that uh, I'm sure I wasn't the under, uh, only person wondering why can't they, can't they just get a yard on a quarterback sneak, mm-hmm. especially when you have this new rule that you're allowed to push from behind mm-hmm. yeah. on that. It's like it's, it seems like it would be a physically impossible to stop. And, and so finally the the. The third to last day of my job, Sunday in San Antonio, I did ask Andy Ledwig just to make sure he had the quarterback sneak in the playbook, and he assured me that it that he did. But <laughs> I wish I would have been there to watch that. Yeah, but <laughs> it was on page forty nine. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> can't get to everything, but but I I think that it that in itself is a commentary that that Andy himself did not have confidence in that offensive line. To just plow ahead and and get a yard. Right, even that's with interesting a, a because sneak. when you look at the other side of that, though, you think you're you've got one yard to go, and you line up six or seven yards behind the line of scrimmage, and you're waiting for this um, RPO or not RPO, but a zone read to happen, and it's just a slow developing well, play, well, and then all of a sudden you're you've lost two yards. Well, we saw that in the in the bowl game against Texas when we snapped the ball at the one yard line. And I swear he handed the ball off to Zach near the back of the end zone. <laughs> and, you know, you're just praying that Zach can get out of the end zone uh-huh. before he gets tackled. And, yeah, I, I, for as good as Ludwig was all year, you know, I, the qu- questionable were the fourth down calls, the third and shorts, where we just seemed to go to the well over and over. And then we're surprised when it wasn't working over and over again. Instead of trying to, you know, uh, run pass option with Tyler, get him out, get him to the outside, give him that ability to to pass it and to run, you know, at least create some different opportunities for the offense. Because even in the games where we we were blowing teams out, we failed on short yardage. Was it Arizona that they got stuffed on the goal line right before halftime? Exactly. Mm-hmm. You see, in games like that, where it was kind of a blowout at the end. It, so it didn't but, hurt you. Uh, no, but but to Kirk's point, all these little things that happened throughout the whole season, especially looking at the offensive line, not converting third and fourth shorts, kind of came to a big head at the end, and, and it, it really hurt the Utes there. Well, and it, it, I, I, I just wonder, and we haven't jumped into special teams, which you know I think in some ways was turned out to be a positive, you know, I, I, I the kicking game was better, I think, than a lot of us thought. But I think you saw Kyle in the past, he'd run, you know, when you got Andy Phillips and you got Matt Gay, he was running field goal kickers out there left and right to kick field goals. Whereas this year, 
I don't think he had that confidence because that's why we went for so many fourth downs when we were in field goal range or even, you know, maybe a longer field goal, but still, still within range of kicking a field goal. Um, you know, we, in the, in the conference championship game, there were a couple of times where I, I thought we could have kicked a field goal, but we went for it and then turned the ball over, give Oregon some momentum and, that's a good point, but it, it's kind of ironic to me that Whittingham always talks about how he plays the percentages in certain things. And if you play the percentages on third and one and fourth and one by what we've witnessed this season, those percentages weren't good to come out positive, but he kept doing it anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point because he does mention, you know, those percentages and, and, uh, you know, you'll notice him go to, I, I can't remember the, the name of the coach um, who's an, an assistant who kind of has the book, right? What to do in this scenario with as much time on the clock, what should you do? And you notice he'd go to him a couple of times and uh, over the course of the season and ask, you know, his input, what does the book say? But yeah, he, he continued to run out there and, and go for it on fourth down and I mean, a lot of a, a lot of issues, right? A lot of things that kind of crept up at the, towards the end of the season that ultimately just led to that. I guess you could say a collapse. That's probably the best way to explain those last two games. But speaking of that, there there also was a, a fourth and four at the forty yard line in the just right at the start of the fourth quarter of the Oregon game, and he chose to punt. That's true. Tw- down twenty three to fifteen, and. It's a defensible move, obviously, because they punted to the ten yard line, and, and if and the defense actually had a really good third quarter, and if they get the ball back in that situation at around midfield, and then maybe go on and score and potentially tie the game, but that happened to be the the one instance where they got to third and one at the Oregon thirty, and C.J. Verdell breaks it for seventy <laughs> yards, so. So again, he, so so that was the one time Kyle did the Kyle thing, and like everything else in it in the last two games, that that failed as well. But I I, I still just can't get a grasp. I mean, I, I look at you know how dominant we were, and we've talked about these issues, right? The things that we maybe were overlooking over the course of the season. But you get to which was arguably. Going into that Pac-12 title game, the biggest game in program history, you could argue. With what was on the line, potentially not only winning your first Pac-12 championship, guaranteeing yourself at minimum a Rose Bowl appearance, and and as it turns out uh, uh, the next day, you're probably getting into the playoff if you were to win that game. So much on the line. What I can't fathom is how we came out. I mean, I just thought I thought guys would just be flying around. I thought we would just be on fire, and it just there. It was almost like the the USC game. There was no. It didn't seem no sense of urgency, urgency, any intensity, and and Oregon they had it. They had that fire. They were hitting. They they knew they needed that game, and they were playing like it. And it just, that's what, that's to me is the biggest surprise is how we came out in that game and almost just kind of didn't fight back. You know, it's interesting. Uh, this whole discussion about these last two games, you, there's a, kind of the, uh, the scale ranges from complete disgust to complete rationalization. <laughs> and, uh, and it's, it's both my 
ability and my weakness to kind of be in the middle of any scale. So, so I'm going to say some things that are going to be closer to the discussed end and some that are closer to the rationalization end. And so maybe I'll start with the rationalization part. And I think this, that Oregon was a pretty darn good football team. And I think people got misled and maybe the youths themselves got misled by Oregon losing to Arizona State two weeks before, which ultimately, if you want to get right down to it, that's what cost Utah the Rose Bowl. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, it's always ASU. Yeah, that always to, is yeah. <laughs> isn't that weird? <laughs> to that point, Oregon was a playoff team. Yeah, Oregon, yeah, exactly. Oregon should have been in the playoff. To me, they underachieved to not be in the playoff. Okay, but the point being, they played like they should have played in the Pac-12 championship game. I don't, I don't think they suddenly played over their heads. I think they just finally figured it out, and and they did, they did play well. They had their wake up game later than the Utah did. Yeah, there's something to that. But and and I, I think, I think there was a slight. Okay, clearly the Ute fan base underestimated Oregon. Now whether that had anything to do with the game itself, whether the team fractionally underestimated Oregon as well that part I don't know but I but I do I do know that Oregon was a very good football play team with possibly the best offensive line in college football and well they negated the, our defensive line right and, and that and that's and we all framed that matchup as the key element to the whole game and expecting that Utah would would match up to that test better than they did. Now, as Bradley and I and other players said, it wasn't as, as if Oregon just knocked them off the ball every play, but there were there were enough gaps to to be exploited again, as we talked about. And maybe the defense was at a kind of a selling out point in the fourth quarter, but to give up the seventy yard run and a thirty yard run for touchdowns was was kind of eye opening. But in terms of the way that game started. And again, it comes back to the short yardage thing. I really believe that if Utah had been able to finish that opening drive, which started with, I I don't remember the sequence, but I know they had like a 15-yard completion and about an 11-yard run by Moss. All of a sudden, they're at the Oregon 40-yard line with the first down, end up turning it over on downs because they couldn't convert third and one or fourth and one. If, if Utah goes down and scores on that, I think they get the confidence and they, they deflate Oregon a little bit. But it's amazing how much turning it over on downs and then Oregon going down and scoring, it just kind of flipped the whole idea. And it just, it just felt like the Utes were, were pressing from that point on. But it's still crazy. It wasn't like they were going three and out every time. It wasn't nearly as bad as the first half of the <laughs> Alamo Bowl, if we, if we want to look at it that way. Because the Utes, I have never seen a game where this happened. They literally got the ball to the Oregon 40 or slightly inside five times in the first half. So you're, you're moving the ball. You're getting first downs. But yet they couldn't ever get to the 30. It was like this. Yeah. Well, they, they they never took a snap in the red zone in that game, yeah, which was crazy. But they they probably had twenty five snaps in Oregon territory. Yeah, that's what was crazy about it. Conversely, in the Alamo Bowl, they they couldn't get to the fifty yard line until the last minute of the half. So it was just like, man, just 
it, it wasn't a total dominant performance by Oregon, but it what the Utes did so well all year long, like we talked about, was having these 12 or 14 play drives where they just kept getting one first down after another and converting on third downs, and they just couldn't do it in that championship game. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. So, you know, we kind of posed this out to, for questions. And, we, you know, since the bowl game, we've actually gotten uh, just a lot of people already just emailing in, uh, tweeting us in. So, uh, you know love the support uh for doing that you know one kind of theme that i, th- I think we've kind of seen in a lot of these questions and anger. <laughs> anchors one yes utah's risen their talent gap on the field what about the coaching gap is is there one does utah need to make changes on the coaching staff uh, i mean it's it's de- you know, it's something that every, you know everyone's going to have a different opinion on. It's going to be debated, but you know, from my standpoint, obviously, I, you know, I think there's always opportunities for upgrades. There's no doubt about it. But you you look at what this staff has done with where they kind of fall in the recruiting rankings, right? Year after year, we're not pulling in top fifteen classes like USC's, Oregon, even UCLA for that matter. And with where they now, granted, since they've joined the Pac-12, those rankings have continually gotten better, whereas this year they just signed the best class they've ever had. But it's still not, it's still not a top-10 class. And so it's going to take some time to really you know, have those types of athletes and, 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 most importantly, have that type of depth within the program. But it's hard to argue that Utah is one of the best staffs as far as developing talent and, and developing players making them NFL ready when when they were recruited nobody thought they'd be NFL players and so I, I I'd, I'd argue where we're at as a staff I, I don't think that's the issue in my opinion yeah it's an interesting question and I, and clearly Kyle Whittingham said it after the Alamo Bowl that they, they got out coached now that's the kind of the classic Bill Belichick thing to say uh they got outplayed and out coached and and hope that that's all the explanation you need when uh, it's not nearly satisfying enough to the fan base, and, and nor should it be. But but I think if you if you do back up and and, and look at it, uh, the staff did a good coaching job. Kyle Whittingham was the coach of the year in the Pac-12, which means the staff was the staff of the year. Now there may have been some anti-Oregon bias that came into play there, but <laughs> but clearly they did a, what you'd have to say was a good coaching job. But until probably the Alamo Bowl was, I don't think they got outcoached by Oregon in the championship game. I think they got outplayed. But I, I I think Texas coaching staff did a tremendous job under crazy circumstances. I mean, basically an offensive coordinator and a defensive coordinator who either knew they weren't going to be kept or 
or were fighting for their jobs, and and they did a good job in that game. But now the work gets interesting, and and I think perhaps we'll segue into what the future looks like for for Utah football. To the point about this being the the best recruiting class they've had, it's still ranked like what fifth between fifth and seventh in the Pac-12, and I think. That is the ceiling for recruiting. Now, I think the program can be better than fifth to seventh in the in the Pac-12, and clearly it has been the last two years. But I I thought I don't think realistically they'll ever be better than fifth in a given year of recruiting. If if that happens, something weird is going on. <laughs> All of a sudden, we're we're uh, right up against the Pacific Ocean. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're, you're up against USC, UCLA, Oregon, and Washington right off the bat. I mean, that, yeah, that puts you in fifth place alone, right there. Yeah, one of those teams has to to mess up as USC did this year. Apparently, just had a horrible. At, we're calling it a recruiting year. Perhaps they can catch up in in February, but it's a it's a long way from twelfth to into the top five. But yeah, basically speaking, Utah is going to be Utah when it comes to recruiting. And so they have to be a developmental program. That's always going to be the case. And and I think, again, the fact that they're going to have 8 to 10 NFL guys drafted in April, and, and you go back and look at where those guys were in their starting points, it's, it's pretty impressive. Now, it turns out that, and again, one disclaimer I always make is, you, like, Utah had, what, 19 seniors this year. Only, like, eight of those guys actually signed in 2016 because you have missions and red shirts. And so it's not like a typical Power 5 program where you sign guys and then four years later they all are seniors. But... What's interesting then is to, is to look at the actual guys in this senior class who did sign in 2016. That was a pretty good core group because there you are talking about Anai, Huntley, Moss, etc., Fotu. And so that, that, that you can say that 2016 was a really probably better than average recruiting class and, and a higher starting point than, than a lot of what becomes Utah senior classes, but, but still overall, th- those guys being drafted in April is a sign that they did get developed and they did improve during the course of their career. So, so I think in an overall sense, Utah's staff has to be credited with, with doing a good job over the last X number of years. Now the, the part, in-game coaching, what happens on the field in, in these big games could be said to be lacking. But, but the other point I would make in, in trying to wrap this up in, in judging the coaching staff is that the, the knock on Kyle Whittingham was he always lost a game or two in a year that he shouldn't lose that, that was inexplicable and, and would come back to haunt them. We, 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 can, we can all go down the list. Oregon in 2016, uh, Arizona a couple different times, UCLA a couple different times. That didn't happen this year. So I don't think we can lose sight of that. So, and, 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 and again, kind of the, the 
the framing of the whole conversation is it was such a big letdown at the end of the year because they didn't have those letdowns in the middle of the year. Again, to my original point about how it was going to be difficult to exceed six and three, I thought a couple of things. I thought USC on the road would be really tough, and it was. I thought Washington on the road would be really tough, and it was, but they won that game. And I just thought there would be this one asterisk game that that you lose just because the Pac-12 is balanced and Utah has this history of losing a game that, that makes you wonder why they lost it. But they the program rose to a level where they didn't lose that game this year. They rose to a level where they found a way to win at Washington. So then, so then the only criticism you can have is, is that they didn't show up and, and play that way in those big games. But to me, that's a better problem to have than losing the games you shouldn't lose. Well, and if you look back, I mean, I obviously we're, we're frustrated. It's a disappointment how how they ended the season. But had had we been told, okay, you at the start of the season you're going to go eleven and three, and your three losses are going to be USC, Texas, and Oregon. None of us probably are going to be all that surprised, right? I mean, those are name teams. Those are brand teams that you know year after year recruit extremely well. And just, you know, they've got that, that blue blood history. So if you look at it that way, it's like, okay, well, yeah, we probably should have lost those games. Now, when you actually get into it and you get into the season and you, and you see a di- somewhat disappointing USC team, a disappointing Texas team, and I think that's kind of where you take it away and go, you know, Texas, they're good, but they only won seven games before the bowl game. USC underperformed. And and throughout the season, you could argue Oregon somewhat underperformed, um, you know, until they kind of got hot in, in the postseason. So there's there's so many different factors at play there that kind of I think can kind of mess with the fan the fan bases heads a little bit. And I think it just adds to that disappointment of where where that regular season, which you could argue may have been one of the the best or second best regular seasons in program history. So you have all that hype going in and and to come out and kind of just lay an egg those last two games. It's just it's it's discounted what this team did in the regular season. Uh just a couple more questions here. What's the Utes trajectory next year? Do you think we're the Utes are going to be up, they're going to be down from where they were this year? Oh man, that's from a just from a defensive standpoint, you've got to say they're going to be down. So, I mean, Utah always puts a good defense on the field, um, but when you only have two returning starters coming back, you have to expect there's going to be some letdown there. And then off the offensive side of the ball, you're losing the offensive player of the year and a senior quarterback and and your all-time leading rusher. You know, yeah, I I I think it's it's. People's opinions next year are going to be all over the board. You know, I'm, I'm, you're already hearing from fans that we should be a 10 win team next year. And I'm kind of thinking to myself, like, whoa, let's see how spring ball goes first before we put 10 wins on this, on the, on the year. But I think, you know, obviously it's going to come down to what you get out of the quarterback. It is rising what we're hearing? Can he live up to the hype of, you know, this Texas transfer and being this stud? Well, or or does Bentley come in from South Carolina who, you know, he's had a successful career. Does he come in, win the job, and, 
and produce at, at a high level. I think that that's going to be a, a question mark. How do they perform behind this offensive line? Because, you know, rising nor Bentley, they're not Tyler Huntley. So they've got to have protection. This offensive line's got to give them time, you know, but you're going to have most of your wideouts back. You're deep at the running back position. So I think I think there's potential for this team to, to contend and contend for the South again. But uh, I think you're gonna. There's just a ton of question marks all over the field. Yeah, I just really think it's gonna be a fascinating year because, again, I keep talking about these number of draftees, and there's a parallel to 2016 and 17 when when you had a school record eight draftees in what was the 2017 draft in April, and then that year the Utes go three and six in conference play. Now. That's with a couple of asterisks. If they get the two-point play at USC, they win that game. And if they hold on in the fourth quarter at Washington, that's another landmark victory. So that still was a, a good team, but the reality was it, it finished 7-6 and six overall and, and, again, 3-6 and six in the league. Now, I do believe that the program is built to not have that kind of drop-off but I also think it'll, it's going to be difficult to win. Again, I'll, I'll put the the over under at about five point five conference wins, and so that puts you in the in the range of of winning eight or nine games total going into the bowl game. I, I think right now that'd be a heck of a year because a, it reminds the other parallel is. You look at Washington this year. They lost nine defensive starters going into 2019, and that was a seven and five team. It went four and five in conference play. Now, as the Utes know, they, 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 the Huskies still had a lot of talent, and and they they could or should have beaten both Oregon and Utah, having those games in Seattle. So, so again, maybe they didn't drop off as far as their record suggested, but. To think it, that Utah automatically becomes the favorite to win the South the third straight year, I, I, I think that's a stretch. I, it, it will surprise me if Utah is picked to win the South universally. I think they can contend, but I also think it's realistic just to expect a little bit of a drop-off. And again, to the point about the offensive line, that's, that's the one area where they, they do have the most people coming back. Uh, maybe receiver is comparable. But there are just as many questions accompanying that group as, as proven answers. So it's really going to – that's what kept me going in the business for so long was that, that uh, you just have this constant anticipation of what the next season is going to be like, whether some years there's more questions to be answered than others. And, uh, and this is, is one of those years. Well, I think next year, too, it's really going to prove where this coaching staff is. Well, you said, Ryan, rebuilding that whole defense. Uh, I know they like to reload, not rebuild. Um, and then with the offense, with the new quarterback, whoever it's going to be, I think it's really going to be interesting is what this off, what, what this coaching staff is going to be able to do. Uh, and I think, you know, that will pay dividends for next year. I think it's all going to be on coaching next year. Oh, just a couple of other questions as we kind of wrap this up. Looking back at the season, let's just quickly go around. 
let's start with this. The lowest of lows of the season. Ryan, we'll start with you. The lowest of lows has got to be the Pac-12 championship game. I mean, we were, Scott, Scott and I watched it together. And just going into that, we're so pu- I think everyone was so pumped to be there, and and the expectations were so high that um, I think most Ute fans thought we would win that. A lot of them thought we'd win it going away, um, but then just to sit there and watch that happen was that was that was hard. I mean, it took me. A few days you to get over it. No, it took you weeks. <laughs> it took you weeks. I deleted Twitter from my phone for about three weeks because I couldn't take it. <laughs> Scott, lows to lows for you. Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to be a pretty common theme. I, I, I would just, start, I would just probably say the postseason in general. Um, you know, obviously the letdown of that Oregon game, and I, I think the lows of lows is it almost just seemed like. I don't, I don't, I don't know if they gave up in that Oregon game. Maybe late when it was kind of out of hand, but it seemed like in that Texas game, which surprises me because we for having so, you know Kyle Winningham talked about the senior leadership and and how incredible they were the, the leadership of this team and and you go to this bowl game and yes the Alamo Bowl which is the the second best bowl game in the conference. Most years we would be out of our minds excited to go to that game, and nobody was excited. And and I don't, you know, including the team apparently. Yeah, well, I, I think human nature. I mean, you look at these players; they're the ones putting all the time in in spring, waking up, doing these six a.m. workouts, going to practice. They're the ones doing the grind day to day. And we as fans, right? We we follow it during the week. We tune in on the weekend, and we're we're completely devastated with these outcomes and and you look at the team and obviously they're going to be way more devastated than we were with how that Pac-12 championship game turned out. They weren't excited to be in the Alamo Bowl. So my long my my long answer here is I just I just think that how those games went and and as, as they went on it just kind of seemed like we had no fight left in us and i don't know why necessarily i don't you know maybe i'm reading something into it that's really not there but to me that would be the the lowest of lows just not only not, it's one thing to get beat right you lose on a last second field goal and oregon wins the pac 12 it's another thing to kind of get your clock cleaned a little bit and just not have that fight and to me, that that's the low of low. The one article I'll give myself credit for writing in advance of the Alamo Bowl was how the loser of the Pac-12 championship game was 0-8 in its bowl game that followed that title game loss. And clearly, that has a, a hangover effect. Now, I'm going to contradict myself and say that the Alamo Bowl, to me, is far less easy to explain than the championship game. Because I, I, I will stick to the point that Oregon was a really good team. And again, playoff caliber team that messed up and otherwise would have been in the playoff and should have been. Texas, I, I just had no foreshadowing that Utah would not be able to block Texas. Up front, I, I I remember observing that Zach Moss needed 161 yards going into that game 
to break the only, basically the only record he didn't hold, which was the single season rushing record. He needed to get over the 1,500-yard mark for the season to get that from John White. And I thought he had a great opportunity to get 161 yards in that game, and he got 57. And 26 of that came on one run. The other 15 runs netted 31. I just, again, with the disclaimer that I could or should have pointed out more of Utah's offensive line deficiencies, I just never in my imagination could picture them not being able to knock those guys off the ball and get Zach 100-plus yards. So so the, the Alamo Bowl, to me, was, again, even knowing the the – the asterisk of, of how t- tough it is to regroup after the huge disappointment of the championship game. I, I really did get myself to a point where I thought Utah would be the team that broke that string and, and had the kind of leadership and guys who were determined to finish better, to play better than they did in San Antonio. Yeah, I definitely agree with you guys. Those to lows, oh, that Alamo Bowl, and especially the comments after about how they – Treated more like a vacation than a game. Um, I thought I thought Kyle was going to just uh, wipe Tyler right <laughs> off the press table there. <laughs> it definitely not the way you want to end a season, um, and not the way we're going to end the podcast. We did lows of lows, highest of highs, best memory that that you'll remember about the season. I'll go first on that one because there's it, it a clear choice for me, and that that was being at the, the Washington game in Seattle. That that was a just a, a a statement win for the program in so many ways. They, it's it's almost impossible to do this, but they had lost four games to the Huskies over the previous three years, counting the the 2018 Pac-12 championship game, and to fall behind 14 to three and have the offensive line in kind of disarray because they didn't know if Simi Moala would be able to come in and play in that game. It's it's crazy to think they started Bam Olasheni and. <laughs> in in what was at the time the biggest game of the year, and crazily enough, he gets hurt on the second possession, and that ends up kind of saving the day because Moala came in and played great, and the, the offensive line was solid from that point on. But just and to go into the fourth quarter trailing, and to put together these two long drives that required great pass protection, great throws, and great catches, and. Uh, with all the history of Chris Peterson versus Whittingham and and the more recent struggles of Utah versus Washington and a great crowd, a great day, just a classic setting with Lake Washington in the end zone there. I, I mean, it's just one of those moments where, where you're, you'll, you'll never forget being there. And, uh, and then later on that night, Oregon beats USC and, and all of a sudden, the whole Pac-12 South thing is clearly in Utah's hands. I, I, I just, I just think that was a, a, a game I'll, I'll always cherish. Yeah, I mean, I that that was huge. I think that was just kind of get that monkey off Whittingham's back, off the team's back, just beating Chris Peterson, beating Washington, and doing it there, which was which was enormous. I, I would say, kind of uh, the highlight for me was probably Tyler Huntley. Um, you know, I, I, I never would have anticipated that he would, that we would have an all pack 12 quarterback, 
right? Voted first team, player, offensive player of the year. That We just haven't had that at Utah. That's not the position that we have thrived on or thrived in. And, and, and to see what he kind of did this year, again, behind a pretty porous offensive line, um, I, I remember countless games just thinking, like, how did he just make that throw? And his efficiency throughout the season, I mean, he was top top five QBR all season long. I, it was fun as a Ute fan to finally sit back and and watch really good quarterback play. Yeah, he wasn't throwing it 40, you know, 40, 50 times a game. But what he was asked to do, he did really well. And he led this team to, you know, one heck of a season. So... Just sitting back, it was a lot of fun to kind of uh, be able to see that and see see his growth as a quarterback and and what he could what he became. Two different games come to mind. Two different players, Moss and Huntley. Um, first is the Arizona State game, which is one of those games where it seems like Utah has to win. ASU always seems to come come in there and steal one from us at one of those important games. And both Moss and Huntley were injured during that ASU game and they both came back and fought through that. And we ended up, you know, easily winning that game. But then I have to go with Kurt also on the Washington game. I mean, obviously we weren't lucky enough to be there like you were, uh, but watching Huntley work in that fourth quarter and that the play that comes to mind is the play where he threw Nakua open. And I want to say it was fourth down. It was a third, it was third down. Um, it just from that that camera angle from behind where he threw the ball and where Nakua had to get to to make that catch was was fantastic. And you just think that's where Tyler had come from to that moment was was spectacular. So I think when I look back at this season, a lot of it's going to be on Zach Moss and then the historic career he had with with all the the, the records he broke. Um, and really, I think this senior class was just so fun to watch growing up, um, over the last couple years, whether it be Huntley and Anai, Moss, Fotu, Blackman. I mean, one thing that I think we're very fortunate enough with this podcast, and I know Kirk, you're going to echo this with, with your line of work. When you get to, to know these, these guys, these kids on a personal level, um, that we do, it's fun to see them succeed. Um, and I think for me, that that's my highest high, seeing them succeed. That eight-game winning streak is phenomenal. I don't know if we'll ever see that again in a Pac-12 conference with this Utah win eight straight. Uh, so to me, that that's really my highest of high is just all all their success and that, that eight-game winning streak. Uh, so again, you know, thank you everyone for, for your questions. It really helps add to this this podcast. We, we really we, we love the support. You know, I think this game with LSU Clemson is getting pretty tight. I think we're going to wrap things up so we can kind of finish watching that game. And again, hopefully there's not some controversy with the Pac-12 refs. <laughs> really quick, once around, final thoughts on the season. Kirk, we'll start with you. Yeah, what comes to mind is kind of the way we framed it to begin with. That there was such a, a buildup during the course of the season that made the the ending even more of a letdown than it otherwise would have been. But as a writer, 
all I could ask is that they created this kind of overarching story that developed during the year. And did we all want it to end better or literally the end somewhere else? Yes. But for them to create this storyline that every Tuesday at five o'clock we were hanging on the CFP rankings. That's exactly what I pictured my job description being going into the season, that, that we would have this weekly thing about where are the youths nationally. And this team delivered that. And that's almost as much as I could ask for. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, uh, honestly, that was one of the highlights of my week was was tuning in <laughs> and seeing, okay, did we rise? Did, did Oklahoma jump Utah? And, and just kind of watching, watching, I mean, Utah was really the storyline in college football for about a month. That's all anybody was talking about. As soon as Oregon lost, Utah, you know, wins, we jump, we jump up in the rankings. And it was Utah, it was Oklahoma, it was Alabama. I mean, who, who would have thought? Who would have thought that that's where we would be? And and so to to sit back and say okay you know the season's a loss because of how it ended when the ride was so spectacular I mean it was it was so much fun as a fan just being able to to go on that ride and watch these seniors to your point cam watching these guys who you've kind of watched develop and grow up and 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 mature and and to see what they were able to do on the football field was so much fun I I, I think moving forward. This program, they, they kind of slayed a lot of the demons that, uh, that had been kind of hanging over the program. I, I think one that to get where the fan base wants to be, to get where this program ultimately wants to be, which is a Pac-12 title, get into that Rose Bowl or, or the playoff, is I, I, what I want to see is moving forward winning the big games. Because it feels like it's been a long, long time since we've won a real, real big game. And uh, obviously, you know, two two tough losses to end the season kind of accentuates that a little bit. But the program's on the right track. I, you know, we've got we've got the the players. We're getting the depth, and and this coaching staff. Kyle's kind of coming into his own, and he's really he's he's gotten to this program where I think it just can continue to to develop year after year. So I'm excited. It's a great time to be a Ute fan, and uh, you know, next season the expect expectations are not going to be what they were this year. But uh, that may be fun. That may be a fun, different ride to not have those high expectations and watch Utah go out and kind of surprise people again when they're not expected to to be at the top. Yeah, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about the last two games and how disappointing they were, but. And it, clearly, I I was disappointed. Um, but you know, enough times passed when you sit when you take a step back and really look at the season in retro- retrospect it it was a fun ride um even going back to as kurt mentioned back in the beginning of the podcast tonight there was a year ago when those seniors decided they were going to come back because they had quote unfinished business um and when you when you think about that there's never been a group of guys at utah to that banded together and did something that special, um, and just to watch them progress and run through the, and go through that entire season like that was was it was just fun. I mean, to be there every all seven home games and and watch that, and of course watch all the road games. It, it was just 
it, it was it was fun. It, unfortunately, it didn't end how we all wanted it, and it didn't end how the players wanted it. Obviously, uh, and they're obviously disappointed too. But uh, overall, fun fun season. All right, and a big thank you again to Double Tree Suites for taking care of us. Uh, located at one ten West, six hundred South. Uh, you know they. Uh, I know we mentioned the staycation. If you need office spaces, they got. They can hook you up. They got conference rooms. Whatever size you need, big or small, they got you covered. Again, 110 West, 600 South. Kirk, thank you so much. Coming out of retirement <laughs> for joining us. I know you'd rather be at home with your family, with your wife, but but thank you for, for slumming it with us for a few hours and, and, and really appreciate everything you've done over your career as, as fans. We, we definitely appreciate it. And I do want to say you went out in style because you deleted Twitter, right? <laughs> I'm back with a golf-themed Twitter account now. Ooh, but, uh, oh, that, that, I, I want to follow I that know, one. Do you, could you, could you give that Do you give that handle out? Yes, at Utah Golfers. I just set it up today, in fact. So that's my that's my new phase of life. Nice. I can't right. wait till I get to that phase of my life. So, uh, so you, are you, what do you, quick little highlight, what are you going to be focusing on on that? Yeah, I, I still am actually going to cover some... Uh, golf for the Tribune, like when the Corn Ferry Tour, the development tour, the PGA Tour comes to Farmington, I'll I'll do events like that in the state amateur and and so forth, and keep track of the the local guys that make it onto the PGA Tour. That's always been a fun element for me. But but yeah, it was kind of different t- this morning to literally uh, wa- go from zero to ten followers, and that was that it kind of. Drove home the point that uh, I'm getting into a new, a new uh, element of my career, but hopefully I can have some fun with that. But but thanks to you, Cam and Scott and Ryan, this has been really fun, and I I, I literally will walk out of here tonight wishing I could come back and cover Utah football next year just because of the <laughs> conversation we've had. But uh, but we'll, we'll bring you back if yeah. you want. <laughs> okay, anytime. <laughs> Anytime. Ryan, where can people find you on Twitter? At Drum and Feather. Drum, the letter N, Feather. And Scott? Yeah, you can find me. I, I, I still have, I, I took a little delay, a little, a little hiatus on my uh, Tyler Huntley statue. <laughs> oh, I, was, I was licking my wounds, so I still got to finish that. But uh, you can find me at Uteman underscore forever. You can follow me on Instagram, on Twitter, at UtahManPodcast. Uh, and anywhere you listen to a podcast, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, we are there and at our home, utahmanpodcast.com. And this isn't the end. We're still, basketball's getting full, full swing. So we'll be continuing the show, as always, with the running Utes. Until next time, go Utes. Go Utes. Go Utes will be till I die. And I can say go Utes now, since I'm not, <laughs> not in the media. I like it, <laughs> yes. Love it. We're good. Let's cut it. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are their own and are no way affiliated with the University of Utah.